Chris Lee is the author of the short story collection Drifting House and the 2016 debut novel How I Became a North Korean, both published by Viking Penguin Random House. She is a recipient of the Rome Prize and the Story Prize Spotlight Award, the honor title in adult fiction literature from the Asian Pacific American Libraries Association, and finalist for Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and the BBC International Story Prize. Her fiction, journalism, and literary translations have appeared in Granta, The Kenyan Review, Narrative, San Francisco Chronicle, and The Guardian, among others. She is an assistant professor of creative writing and literature at Yonsei University, Underwood International College in South Korea. Chris Lee, welcome to the creative process. Thank you for having me. So I'm, I'm going to read from uh, Drifting House. There's a nice discrete unit, maybe three minutes long that I can read from just to give a sense of the language and the territory, the geographical territory of my imagination. Wonderful, please. Uh, this is from the title story, Drifting House. The day the siblings left to find their mother, snow devoured the northern mining town. Houses loomed like ghosts. The government's face was everywhere, on the side of a marooned cart, above the lintel of the gray post office, on placards scattered throughout the surrounding mountains praising the dear leader Kim Jong-il. And in the grain sack strapped to the oldest brother Won Chul's back, their crippled sister, the weight of a few books. The younger brother Che Chul ran ahead, like a child, Won Chul thought, frowning, though he was also a child, an eleven-year-old with a body withering on two years of boiled tree bark, mashed roots, and the occasional grilled rat and fried tr crickets on a stick. He picked across the public square, afraid to step where last month the town had watched two men dragged in, necklaces of bones, and hanged for cannibalizing their parents. They passed a vendor and woman haggling as if on the frontier of madness. On the straw mat between them, one frozen flank of beef, pork, or human, no one knew anymore, though they pretended to. She's slowing us down, Chechul whined as he circled back. We'll be dead before we reach China. Wancha tied his brother's laces in symmetrical bows. Be quiet, he said, for younger children obeyed the older one who obeyed the mother, who obeyed the father, who obeyed the dear leader. For the school textbook stated that a swallow had descended from heaven at the dear leader's birth, that trees bloomed and snow melted in the dear leader's presence. He stubbornly ignored the salmon fishery in the town's vegetable gardens that the soldiers guarded, shooting intruders on sight, for there was an order to everything, or there used to be. Still, he soldered his siblings up the mountain slope of granite and bare spectral trees with the assurance of an oldest son. His legs shook under his sister's slight weight. As they continued, the town's narrow harmonica homes, the empty factories, even the glorious statue of Kim Il-sung, their great leader and the dear leader's father, shrank to the size of a thumbnail. Then their town was gone. He labored with his back heavy with Kuka's weight, his face scraped raw with exposure to the weather, until his knees buckled once, 
twice in the snow ahead of them were only the white backs of the mountain range and the Tumen River still nowhere in sight. He could carry her no farther. And from there, of course, yeah, what happens to them happens. <laughs> and so I, I was hoping you would choose that passage. It's still one of my favorite ones, and I think encapsulates, for those who are yet to discover Chris's work, the delicacy and the poetic resonance, and just this thing that goes the weight of memory and loss, of responsibility to family and country. But just tell us, you know, Drifting House, it's so interesting, and I think you've described your home as like a drifting house. Your life experience has been that. So just, just tell us a little bit of your background going into those, that collection and also your, what you know, made you into the writer you are today. It's an, been an interesting life. Yes, I'm, it's like so many people these days. I think I grew up uh, moving every few years. I had a very restless father and we started in Korea and then we moved to America on the West Coast, but we moved every three years, sometimes in, in the middle of the school year. And I, I just didn't have any roots um, in a, a place I, I, I thought of as home. Uh, and certainly everyone changed every three years, your friends, your communities, your relationships, your schools. And then I crossed to England, you know, for my third year of college. And then I stayed there, and then went back to Korea. And then from there, you know, I, I've been based in Korea for a long time. But even while I was in Korea, you know, I did go to Rome for a year on the Rome Prize. I just came back from my um, a year in Peru um, and South America, working on a novel, doing re novel research there. And so there's always this sense of... Um, home is somewhere in between or our belonging is a place of somewhere in between and i spent so much time i think longing to be uh, to fit in in america or be american and then longing to fit in korea and be korean and i realized i can't you can't actually anyone who's lived between cultures i think comes to a place of realizing your place or your home is this uncomfortable but interesting place in between these places <laughs> And there's large communities of those of those people who uh, call home this in-between space. I'm interested in that space, and um, and I think part of the reason why I was very close, I was an activist in the North Korean community, the defected community, but I was also very close friends with them because they were a, an entire group of people who had been displaced and really were trying to find a place they could now call home that was never really going to be home for them. <laughs> People like us, I'm guessing your, your story as well too, something we can at all understand. So Yu Young uh, Lee, who is our participating student, who, who uh, was drawn to your work and called it to our attention, said we really must include it in the creative process. I mean, just tell us a little bit about, I think that this, some of these life experiences are, I know they're, those that you share, Yu Young, just tell us what you, uh, what drew you to Chris, Chris' work. Yeah, so like Chris, I really resonate with the idea of home being a drifting kind of place. I was born in Korea as well, but ever since too, I've moved around a lot. I spent some time in Indonesia, um, most of my life in England, but also some of my adolescence in Singapore. And now I'm currently here for in Seoul for the year, but I actually study um, at Georgetown in America. And I've always been interested in the idea of 
identity and how place links in with that. This semester, actually, at Georgetown, I um, was studying Asian American literature in particular, and I discovered Chris and her writing and her background. And I just really wanted to hear more about how her experiences and her identity really shapes her writing. So what drew you to writing personally? You know, like so many of us, I guess I grew up in a strange family. <laughs> I, I was a very religious family. My father was a pastor, but he was not a, he wasn't, um, he was a troubled pastor. As by default, we were a family with many secrets because a pastor's family has to maintain a certain kind of appearance publicly, but privately there were there was beyond trouble there was violence there was danger at one point we had to go into hiding because a man with a gun was after our family because of certain things my father had done <laughs> so you know this was just the you know the way uh, we'd grown up and so there was the sense of the unspeakable you know not and everything that felt true felt like something i was not allowed to talk about and because of that, I think uh, literature and these secret lives and these people who often were unable to share in some ways, that attracted me, these private secret lives that other people had as well in fiction. And then the other thing was that uh, I think books always show us what's possible, that all these other lives and places and even genders are possible. Um, and we can only live as one, but when you think of Orlando, Virginia Woolf's Orlando, that the book is such a, it's tremendous in that, you know, here's, here's a writer who, who's playing out her own fantasy in some ways of being so many people of, of different generations, of different historical periods, which I think is what books allow us to do and allowed me to do when I was, when I was a kid to see what was possible. And particularly, I think, when you come from an unhappy childhood, books are so important because it shows you that so many other lives and so many other ways of living, there's a future that books open up to uh, young people, I think. I had an incredible letter. You know, sometimes writers, uh, readers write me uh, letters that are very moving. And one wrote a, a letter that was several pages long, and she was a college student. And she had read my first book, and at that time, she said she was so depressed that she had been thinking of just disappearing. She didn't want to live anymore. But when she, what she saw in the book was she saw survivors and people whose lives were really difficult, but they had a tenacity and a desire to live and they continued. And she decided to continue. And she wrote me to thank me for that. And that was probably one of the most moving letters I'd received. Because I just thought, I'm so glad she's still there. That was really important to me. I, I think that that is true. If one thing, I mean, we want, you know, art for art's sake, but it really gives so many the courage just to continue. And I think that by honoring lives that may be difficult and flawed, so by honoring those lives and those that we might overlook as well, who, whose stories don't always get to be voiced um, or in, in depth, it really allows others and the reading process to feel and um, mm -hmm. I think that you, what you've done, and I want to speak of also about your writing about lives, stories about North Korean lives. That's something that is completely mysterious to us in the West. Do tell us about that and the courage that it, it took to do that. And I, yeah, the the North Korean community. The closer you, you know, I became to them, the more I realized how incredibly complex and diverse and 
strong they were. You know, to actually have risked and survived what they did requires incredible tenacity and imagination as well, and fearlessness. And so, part of the book was to honor those people. And another thing, really, is it's embedded in the title is the question of identity, because we, you know, unless one leaves North Korea, you know, you don't really sit around. The ideas of North Korean identity are things that are shaped so much by outside perceptions of what is North Korean, and it becomes a they become aware of it as they leave the country. It's not something they thought they didn't think of themselves in this way. When they lived in their own country, and I think that also happens to Americans who go overseas and they start to get a different sense of what it means to be American by being outside of America. The way that James Joyce and Samuel Beckett started to think about Irishness by having left Ireland, and、um, that I find really fascinating. And I do see that I did see that happening to North Koreans, and so my title, how I became North Korean, it's it's about North Koreans, the book and the that conflict. And the tension between North Koreans and missionaries, like faith and aid, like helping and faith and power, as well as、uh, how identity is formed by our journeys when we leave versus when we stay in a country. I think it's quite disorienting the idea that you can never be a nationality almost in the nation that you're supposedly a part of. You only realize this North Koreanness once you actually step out and see it from the outside, and I guess it's almost like disassociative. I think that's maybe one of the reasons why we're always so tied up with the idea of identity because we can never actually see it and be in it at the same time, almost. Yes, and then at the same time, when you step out of it, I, mean, I imagine like living in Europe, for example, people come in. I mean, there are you know other people have perceptions of you as a nationality, and you're an individual. And yet, other people will kind of assume certain things about you due to your nationality、mm-hmm. as well.、Mm-hmm. And so, it's such a loaded idea. Fascinating for me how identity is both formed, how one thinks of their own identity, and how identity is also imposed on you as well.、Right. Yeah, I used to say that、um, when I was like the only Asian girl at my school in London. I used to say, "I have the whole peninsula on my shoulders." <laughs> so it's interesting that. You have this insider-outsider status in, in many ways. One, you know, in your travels, you're you're inside the culture. You're from the, you know, you you know, grew up in America, got a large part of your childhood, and yet you have this, you know, South Koreanness on you, you know, and then do your translation work as well, so that you're you're working within the language, you're translating into another culture, so you're having to reflect on this a lot. I like to talk about your translation work, but you know, before we leave, how I became a North Korean. Would you like to read? Do you have to hand a passage or something that would give us a, a glimpse into that, so that others can discover it? Yeah,、um, I have a passage from that, so it's, it's maybe two two and a quarter pages, if that's okay. All right.、Um, there's three characters from very different、uh, social backgrounds in North Korea that the book focuses on. And I'm going to read from the first chapter of a、uh, character named Changmi. In late February or early March, I walked across the frozen Tumen River toward a man from China, ready to give my unborn child a different life. Of course, my crossing had actually started much earlier, maybe with a great hunger, or even before I was born. The China beyond the river that day was as dried up and brown as my country. I walked with the eyes of men and women following me from both sides of the shore. 
I remember being hopeful, though the river banks were still hoary with the remaining snow. A border patrol, who the man from China had bribed, followed me across. There were broad, dark patches where the ice looked as thin as glass. But I was from a border town. I'd smuggled goods in and out since I was fourteen and knew how to read the river. I looped around where the ice became dangerously clear until I was standing in the center of the frozen river and facing the man from China, a Chosunjo. So he spoke our language. He had an eager smile and a small head. He was small everywhere, it seemed, and he limped slowly forward as if needing my permission to come closer. With every step, his left leg swung out rigidly in a semicircle until we faced each other. He was nervous. His right foot kept making circles on the ice behind him like a ballerina. This man named Hongshik said, "You really do believe me now, don't you? I'm a person who can make these kinds of meetings happen. I know everyone, and everyone knows me. Money? Who needs money? You need connections." He tore skin from his upper lip with his teeth. He wanted my approval. The way he repeated himself made that clear. But we didn't have much time, so I interrupted him. I learned fast. I said, "I'll learn anything you want." I shut my eyes tight so I wouldn't have to look at him. When I opened them, he was still shyly taking me in. The shy ones were the worst, hard to read. Why do you want to leave? He asked, as if half my country, the country of his ancestors, didn't dream of living differently. I was so nervous that my fingers dug arcs into my palms. There are no good men in my country, I said. He brightened as I'd intended. I'm a good man, I promise. While the border guard smoked an imported cigarette from the many cases I'd given him to keep him happy, the Chosun man and I hurried through the ten minutes of time we had to talk, the courting time that he had bought for us. Money was a symbol, a disease that infected our country. It was all the money I had earned after quitting school during the Great Hunger, my life savings, you could call it. I was eight when the famine changed everything. After the government rations stopped and the crops were flooded and destroyed year after year, my oma made several trips into China's border towns to find work and food to feed us. Our government had disappeared, and everyone who had followed the rules, including my appa, died. I didn't follow rules. I stole and bartered and learned quickly, and I survived. But when the government devalued our money and made our savings worthless, all my work became nothing at all. There was no present, and the future looked even worse. Then my monthly bleeding stopped, and I realized I was pregnant. Yes, so it it really is going into these lives that I have to say, you know, from a distance because so much doesn't filter through us. We have this kind of sense of just like a people without faces, almost, you know. So you just describe for us some of the challenges, or, or or finding the courage within yourself to to write about these situations that still remain so mysterious. I think for every writer, you know, at least the kind of writer I am, it's part of it is just becoming really interested and attracted to certain characters. So, for example. A、uh, book I'm working on right now—it's called Wonderland, and it's a very different kind of book. It's you know, playing with both the future, but also playing with blurring and breaking down separation between individuals. The the sense of one person being another, one country being another, and、uh, doubling. So this—it's called you know Wonderland for a reason. You know this idea of mirroring and looking at the other, and in that sense. 
the characters, whether they are of the future, they are from different nationalities altogether, or they are North Korean, whatever it is that makes that character so interesting to you, and when you excavate that as a writer, becomes the journey of the novel. And so, for me, in this novel, in how I became a North Korean, Changmi. Was uh, it, she was inspired by a phone conversation I had when I was at the border area, and I, uh, you know, it's on a smuggled phone.、Um, she was a smuggler, <laughs> and we had conversations. And she was actually getting married with somebody, and she was asking for things to be sent. And、uh, she was so memorable, her voice, the way she was, and so strong. And I never learned what happened to her, and that haunted me because、uh, many things happened in between. But that character, the real phone call, inspired the character, and then many other women I met,、uh, North Korean women, both at the border and in South Korea, North Koreans, also shared similar,、uh, a similar strength and a ferocity, and a kind of a sense that I knew. It wasn't about what is right or wrong. It was more about what will I do. To keep going, that was more important than anything else, and that's very easy to judge. But that wasn't, you know, the it was something to admire in,、uh, for me, the sense of survivorship and the sense of strength、um, and cunning sometimes in order to to make it. It, it was a, a complexity that was what I ended up exploring in the novel. But I think in each novel. That's really the challenge: is to find how, no matter how different the character is from your world, in the end, what is it that, as you write and you explore them, you find the thing that connects you to them. And for me, in Changmi's sense, it was that sense of how does one survive? What will one do to survive?、Um, how does she make it? She's, you know, that fearlessness. And the sense of looking towards the future, so little of the victim in her. When we think of a North Korean, many people think of North Korean defectors as kinds of victims. But actually, for me, that kind of woman that I've met so many times is—they're really complex and sometimes funny and charismatic and strong. And I wanted to write that character. What is your research process like, and what did you you knew you had to include, you know, to to just fully give flesh to that complexity? In in the case of actually, ironically, how I became a North Korean was the easiest book for me to to work with in terms of the research. I did read a lot of the nonfiction around it, and there's there are more and more books available. But because I was an activist and I'd been and I'd worked at the border and I'd known North Koreans for a very long time and I was very close to several of them, it was you know it was a story that I felt like needed to be told. From a more from from a certain perspective, like because I wanted to both represent the activists that I admire, as well as a more complex idea of the missionary and the church culture around North Korean、uh, defectors, as well as、uh, defectors' internal lives that hadn't been、uh, written about. I thought fairly. So、uh, the research really reinforced a lot of what I already knew in this case. That was is not the case, unfortunately, with my current novel project, which has you know, and that is so interesting to kind of start from something that looks like it should be more accessible, but is actually a lot more work, and it requires you know, you start 
thinking you're writing about one thing. So you do all this research in one field and then you throw it all away because it leads you somewhere else. And then I have to do all this research in another field and then it leads you elsewhere. And so I feel like I'm going down literally, um, you know, which is why I ended up calling it Wonderland. I feel like I'm going down a rabbit hole <laughs> and into a world that I no longer can, I no longer make up the rules. The rules are being made for me. <laughs> and that includes the research as well. So um, I'm actually, you know, in, in terms of, um, yes, how I became a North Korean, um, uh, I think it's probably the last time I will be able to write a book where the research just reconfirms so much of what I knew from personal, you know, experience and stories and uh, time in that field. Amelia um, Young herself is a young writer. So just tell tell us how, what, what you're interested, how this inspires your process, like how, you know, what you want to know as a young writer. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's really interesting that you wanted to write about North Korea and how that relates to us looking north from the south um, because growing up and just growing into like my Koreanness almost I realized that there's just so many layers and complexities with what it means to be Korean not just in South Korean or North Korean but just Korean if you look at it historically culturally and just how we fit in Korea and also how we fit just outside of Korea and I think a lot of my writing and when it comes to thinking about writing about my culture and like my story or things related to Korea, it kind of comes from this point of comparison. And sometimes I tell myself not to do this because I think it can be almost dangerous to do too much polarization mm. of the two cultures. Yes. But I, where I see overlap, I see distinct features and facets of my Koreanness that definitely speak out to me because I find it so hard to articulate. That's one of the things I'm so compelled to write about. For example, uh, I wrote the short, um, I took a creative writing class this semester mm. actually, so um, this past spring semester was very a very creative and enlightening semester for me, but I wrote a short story called Moonshine and I wrote it with the intent of it being a Korean story, not necessarily in that it was about Korean people, although the characters were Korean. I wanted to write a story that just felt Korean. Yeah, and, and, I, and I'd say that, that there are so many, like for example, I think America's experiencing this right now, like what does it mean to be America? Right. Right? And that there's so many other senses of being American and that you can be in this one country, but even within one's country, you won't, you'll struggle to understand the experience of another, even within the same country. And so I feel like with any culture, it's, it's harder when you're trying to communicate a culture to someone who doesn't feel like they're inside that culture, but like the way, let's say, for example, a particular community will experience grief, then that just means there's more burden on that writer to learn technical strategies, narrative strategies, and lyrical uh, language strategies on how to communicate that to the reader. Because I actually think it's all possible in fiction. And the great thing is 
especially, you know, with Jeff Vandermeer and his whole idea of the new weird now and this and even blurring all the genres themselves within uh, literature, there's a sense of anything is actually possible in fiction. And it's just that the more, the riskier, the harder moves that you make as a writer just means that you have to work harder as a writer to communicate that to your reader and to really make them feel. Because in the end, it's really about both making well what is it making a person feel and think or feel or think differently about something there's a story by Mary Yukari Waters where she writes about a japanese woman who it's very she's very simple she just doesn't have she's not charismatic at all and she doesn't seem to have any of the dynamics of what you think of as a typical protagonist but in the end, she says very simply, there's a kind of inner grief that's very deep, very simple. And for her, she just says, I've always wanted to have children. And that was it. Here's this woman who's just seems very Japanese, very passive in some way, someone very quiet. And you could imagine, you know, there's, there seems like there's so little that she, there's so little expressiveness in her. But the grief wells so deeply in that one sentence. And I think it communicates to us all, though it feels like a very Japanese experience of a particular kind of woman in a cultural time as well, where you know, the singles culture in, in mm -hmm. Japan where people are just kind of isolated and living alone and don't don't really have these relationships anymore. And yet here she is grieving. So Yeah, yeah it's almost trying to get to that universality where we're mm -hmm. all just feeling the same thing. Yes, and I think part of it, again, is getting back to character. Yeah. Hello, my name is Yu Young Lee. I'm currently a sophomore attending Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and I'm majoring in English. I was so thrilled to be able to meet with Chris in person and talk about her work. When I first reached out, I thought that we would need to hold the interview over Zoom where, no pun intended, we hold virtually everything nowadays. Even with masks on and at a slightly awkward but safe distance apart, it was so great. And now, through producing and editing the audio of this podcast, I'm in a place where I'm able to truly reflect on and soak in the ideas and revelations of our conversation once again. What struck me as particularly insightful was Chris Lee's commentary on translation. Later in the interview, she remarks that the love for language is what translation gives back to you. She talks about how the process of going from one language to another makes us really listen to and understand the music of the words themselves. And I saw how translation was something that has been so essential to my life in understanding why I find myself enamored with and obsessing over the two languages I was raised in. English and Korean, in total separation and isolation. And so nowadays, as I pick up more Korean books alongside the books in English that have been on my bookshelf all along, I'm constantly thinking about words, their fruition onto the page, their order, the feel and texture of them. I'll be reading poetry and I'll just scribble on the sides trying to impulsively capture a certain line, like my ballpoint pen is a net and the words are butterflies. Some would definitely find my annotated books an atrocity to look at, 
with the once pristine cream margins of the book now all inked up. But contrary to my attempts resembling something akin to smothering the pages, I am trying to breathe life into them in a different way. In my translation attempts, I found that it's easy at times. Once in a while, I'm a priest or pastor, someone officiating a marriage of the two languages, who are together in such an inherently perfect, pure way. Once in a while, it feels like such a union is more cosmic than constructed. But most of the time, I feel like I'm a counselor trying to do right by both of them. Consoling each of their hard edges and sharp, stubborn corners, whilst also admiring some of their more smoother, gentle qualities. Sometimes, I grapple with even the title. One of Soyoung Kim's poems is called Ki, or Ear. I was thinking about the word Ki in Korean, and I realized that whether the speaker is referring to just the one or both, is left more ambiguous than I first imagined. Ears sounded more titular, if that makes sense, but the poem's first line I translated to, and then you held out your ear. And with that image of someone leaning closer to hear someone whisper something, I knew the poem had to be called Ear instead of Ears. The emotion captured in the singularity of that one ear, that secrecy and privacy, was something I wanted to convey and preserve. But I find myself enjoying the struggle, the difference between ear and ears, every consideration voiced inside my head while I'm translating is one that I'm eager to listen to and weigh. It's a blessed place. Thank you for listening. For those of you just joining, we are continuing this interview with writer and translator Chris Lee. I, did, I mean, because I am writing in English, there is that awareness, you know, it is, I'm clearly writing for English uh, speakers and readers, but for me, it's always been readers who are very serious about books, you know, who want, who care about their sentences, who care about characters, who care about form and structure, and the, they care about not just what is a story, like what's the plot, but how is the plot? <laughs> how does the plot unfold? How is it told is as important. And so, I mean, you know, part of if I have, there is the cultural context or there is sometimes Korean words. And part of those, I, I, when I wrote in draft, for me, those words just come to me in Korean. And it's only after my editor at Penguin would say, no one is going to understand this. And I was like, oh, it's so you know, it seems so obvious yeah, to me. Yeah. And, and so I, then I would start, because I didn't want to, you know, necessarily exclude readers, but I don't want to explain as much as I can. I try not to explain things if they don't need to be explained. And part of that is my background. I started as a poet. And in poetry, you start with a lot of words and then you whittle away to, the, to what is the absolute necessary words, the right words in the right order, as Stephen Dobbins said. So that's, that seems to be my tendency in fiction as well. And so even in another, you know, another book, but the book that I'm working on right now, there's a lot of characters who aren't Korean or if they, you know, they aren't, are they even Asian or Western? Sometimes mm -hmm. it's not even clear about that. It's a very weird book. <laughs> I don't know. I described it to a friend and she said to me, oh my gosh, I think you're writing in that new genre called the new weird. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs>
But even then, I'm finding that there's other way, ways I realize oh, this culture that needs to be communicated that's a different culture. And maybe sometimes it's national culture, but other times it's a religious culture that needs to be communicated. Other times it's a technologi technological culture. And so again, for me, it always comes back to the least amount that I need there mm -hmm. in order for the reader to still be with me. When your readers read your book and they come across a Korean word and given that they do not speak Korean, do you almost expect them to just get the gist of the words? Because like Gino Diaz, when he writes his books, he mm -hmm. imbues a lot of Spanglish and Spanish words. And I don't think it's almost that you need to look up every word on Google. It's just you go with it and in the end, you almost like have it inside you and it's almost like you speak his language that he writes yes. in the book. Yeah, I think Juno Diaz does that and he and he also, it's Spanish, so you have a population, a huge population in the West, in America that reads Spanish. So he has that advantage as well too. Whereas, so he gets few of those questions as um, Asians get more of those questions or Hawaiian writers get more of those questions. Like, why are you writing with these right, words? Yeah. Because there's just fewer people who uh, speak, you know, that language or use that dialect. But I think again, for me, I, you know, he's using it a lot more liberally and he's able to do that. And, and he's also a very voice-driven writer, writer. I really, I mean, I love his work. But uh, for me, I do try to give context when I can, but sometimes I feel like it seems obvious to me and so I just let it go. But it's interesting because I do have readers who come back or even a book reviewer who once said, yeah, I first really struggled with, the, <laughs> with the, the, the Korean words and then I finally got over it. And so I guess it's harder than I, and I, than I realized because, again, for me, it's obviously it's, it's not hard. Right, <laughs> it's, yeah. my, it's, it's my language. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And there's, um, it's interesting because you can know a language like your first language. You can know it like a local if you like live there your whole life. And then you can kind of come to it later. So you kind of suggested also some things that may be, I don't know, untranslatable. Or even the translation just gives the meaning but not the, the sense, the weight. It's in all cultures and maybe in a lot of Asian cultures too where a lot of things are inferred or the emotion isn't expressed. So you just speak, not maybe it's just expressions or some things where you were talking also about grief. There was these kind of very, um, it's just minute, you know, and you have to be almost an insider to decode it in that way. When I think about it now, it might also be that so many words that we associate within the family, like words you might not use, you might not use so often outside of the family, those intimate words, those tend to come to me in Korean and it, and, uh, and, and to write it within a Korean context, to write that in English feels awkward. And partially it's probably because the emotional import of those words, like to say mother or mom versus oma, to me feels very different. The, the weight of that feels very different to me. So it might just be that uh, the sense of the domestic as well too, that private language that I'm clinging to. <laughs> and I feel that language really informs so much you know, internally in the way we think. So you explain that because there may be in you with the thought about this a lot, of course, as a translator. So you have, you have to make sense of some things that don't really translate directly. Yes, I'm um, certainly, you know, I've, I've translated two novels now into English and I've translated short stories and poems as well. It's, it's something I love, like being intimate with that language. 
and it's it's also something I hate because it's so difficult. <laughs> it, every translation is an approximation, especially in poetry, but everything, the fiction as well too. Because of that, I try to stay very faithful to the writer's work. I mean, I was at the Brooklyn Book Festival with the, um, with Kim Young Ha, the writer who I translated, and we were on a panel together. And I, I, I and I said, and he was a little surprised that I said this, but I really believe like a trans when I translate, I I feel like I'm a servant to another text. It's not about me, and it's really about my love for literature and my love for another writer's voice and their words and their style. And so the more I can erase of myself, the better it is for the book. That's my philosophy. That's not every translator's philosophy. There are translators who feel like they are rewriting the book and they're making the book. I don't believe that. I mean, I, and, and that probably is because I'm a fiction writer too. And I'm like, that's not for me. I should just go write my own book. That is my, <laughs> my sense. And, but, you know, and so to, so trying to honor that is what I do, but then you run into those places where Korean words often, there's a vagueness sometimes, uh, English tends to be more, sometimes drier, more precise, Korean uses a lot more onomatopoeia that doesn't sometimes work in English, the sentences are total reconstructions from front and back you know it's a flipped sentence so you know i tr i really try to keep more in mind the voice of the narrator and the as well as the sentence for sentence because it's very easy to lose the actual voice the tone of the work if you aren't if, if you're translating too loosely or if you're translating so strictly that you end up with very strange sentences <laughs> So that, that becomes kind of my, my uh, measure of a translation. It's interesting because uh, speaking of time about the uh, Brooklyn uh, Book Festival, so speaking of Brooklyn writer, you know, Paul Oster was talking to me about he's done a lot of translation and he really feels a little bit skeptical about, you know, writing classes, but he thinks that if you, you know, if you can translate works, that's a great, it's like a writing school in itself. So even if you're being faithful to it, you're really thinking about how, how sentences, how language is working, how characters are built, how stories are built on such an intimate level that, uh, mm -hmm. did you, have you found that, you know, how have you grown as a writer through the process of translation? Absolutely. Translation makes you interrogate every single word, every sentence, you know, is this the right verb? You know, is this the right adjective? What would this adjective be? It really makes you see language again. And so when, when Jhumpa Lahiri started to, you know, when she kind of gave up English for uh, Italian, I mean, I met her at the American Academy at a cocktail party and her Italian is incredible, but you could see the love for language that had revived her. And, and so the love for language is in that is what translation gives back to you. That kind of primitive love that we had as a child when you just devoured books. Um, there's something very elemental about translation because if you're really thinking about the sound of words and the music of words again. I really, I, I love that. And, and, and Korean is, that's why I miss translation. It takes away time from my own fiction writing. And I say, I'm never going to translate again. And then someone dangles a project in front of me. I'm like, oh, it's such an amazing book. I want to translate it. And I was tempted again because it's, again, having this intense relationship with words, you know, that goes for a couple of years. 
I also, I mean, I, I studied Spanish. I, I learned Italian and, and, and sometimes fiction writers tell me, why do you waste all this time studying languages? It takes away from your own work. It's not going to be useful to you. They say, do we live to be useful? First is my question. I'd like to live for more than just utility. <laughs> and I think each time when I study a language, I'm no good with languages. I, I just do it out of love. I become intimate with words and the different way sentences are, are constructed in a language and the music of each language is so distinct that it's that step beyond just fiction and narrative when you're right back to that love for the way words sound, just words knocking against each other. It's maybe why I think all fiction writers should also read and write poetry, you know, to go back to just what is a prose poem? What is a lyric poem? When all, when all these possible words in the English dictionary are carved down to a few hundred uh, words, what do you have left? So it's a great exercise. And I think it's also just a, it's a way to also reignite one's own love for language. And I want to ask because, you know, I know that there's not a, gr a great quantity of uh, works written in Korean translated into English or, uh, you know, it's, it's a limited. So what are some of those books that are just foundational for you that may have been translated so that people can discover them or maybe they have yet to be translated? Like, why hasn't somebody translated them? Maybe it's next on your list to translate. I like to know how you choose the books you translate because I know it's a process. So how do you know which one's the best one for you? You know, there's actually a lot of translated books now in English at least, but also in French and some other languages as well, Ch Chinese and Japanese. Partially, it's maybe you, you could say it's like the golden age of translated literature um, of Korean into English and other languages because there's been a very big government initiative to support writers and translations and markets uh, in the same way that the Northern European market supported like Swedish thrillers. Uh, there's, there's often a government initiative as well as private companies that really believe in literature and outreach that has helped bring lots of books out there. But again, you know, very few are known in the West outside of maybe like uh, a few here and there, like Hangang's The Vegetarian, for example. A lot of people know about that, but they might not know about um, especially like poetry or someone like Lee Sung-woo, who I think is a, a, an incredible writer, but uh, has not, I believe, his work has been translated into French, but not into English yet. So there's there's these gaps all over the place, and uh, but the wave is starting definitely. I think you know for me, uh, I almost think Korean poetry is really it's very rich. It has it, the Korean fiction. Fiction is a new like the novel is a new form in uh, Korean, relatively new. It's a Western form that did not really have a long history in Korea, except for one or two very, very few exceptions in the past. Whereas the theater was, has a very long tradition and poetry was always had the most honored place and, and Korean poetry still will make bestseller lists. It's one of those few countries in the world where poets can actually live on what they make. I hear it's the same in much of the Middle East as well too, where poets are still very revered. The projects that I've done so far, I mean, short stories, it's been usually, unfortunately, both with essays, with, with articles, as well as translations, 
I uh, often do projects because they I've been commissioned to, and it's something that's interesting to me, and I really like the work. I have turned down lots of projects that have been offered to me because I don't, even though I, I thought this is, I won't mention names, but I knew it was going to be a huge book. And I was, they offered me a, a really nice commission, et cetera, royalties. And I just thought, I don't love the book. I don't believe in the book. And I just say no. And so the books that I've, the two books that I've done is by a writer who I think is, he's, he's got a great social, he really understands Korea better than probably almost any contemporary writer today. He's, and, and his vision and his sympathy, as well as his sense of like loneliness of his characters, I think is something I find very interesting. But one reader told me, you know, if you want to understand Korea, one really wants to read Kim Yong-ha because he's so socially interested um, in the way this country is and moves and such a smart man that he, I think he has incredible, he has, he perceives Korea in a way that I think is difficult too for many. So I was very happy when he asked me to translate his books. He's someone I know and I, and I did so. I've been offered a project by a, a writer who I love and who's a friend that I'm considering right now working um, with. And, and again, but this is a writer that lots of people know. So, but it's someone I, you know, whose work I love. Um, but poetry is also something I've been really tempted by. And that's the one place where I have actually approached a writer that I knew and said, I would love to translate your poems because Onyu, who's a real rising star um, in the Korean poetry world. And I think his book will eventually get published in English. There's a big push to get his work out. I just hope that I wish I were first because I want, or someone who's really great at, and I'm not saying I would be, I would do a great job. I just want someone to work on his poems who loves poetry because his, his work is really, really interesting. Yeah, those are all writers that I think are great, but there's so many, I mean, like every country. I mean, I read Korean writers, but I read, I, you know, I, I read Iranian writers. I, I read an incredible German novel by uh, a writer from the Tatar culture recently. I, I'm trying very hard to read from so many different cultures because I think every culture, every country has incredible voices and books, and we read such a fraction. So I love Korean literature, but I am not restricting myself to Korean literature at all. And I, it's kind of, and Korean writers are the same. They, they're really hungry for the voices of the world. They read so much out of their cultures. They read a huge amount of like Western European literature. And I wish we had more of other Asian literatures that I think are less translated, like Vietnamese literature, for example, or Laotian literature. I'm interested in what they're writing too, because there's brilliance everywhere. Yeah. It's exciting. It is exciting and it is interesting. I mean, it's, I've been observed that if you travel more, then we would be moving towards world peace because we'd be accepting other cultures and, and we'd include in that those interior journeys that we can take through books. I, I guess, you know, as we're in closing, thinking about the morality and the ethics and the future that we're all focusing on. So yes, as we think about, you know, the future, the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, the importance of the arts. I think we've all been reflecting on the kind of systems that we have in place and how they are not serving us. And so what do you feel broadly like the importance of the arts, but also beyond that, you know, what might we be doing? How might we modify some of these systems so that we could leave the world a better place? 
love, you know, I, I, unfortunately I'm obsessed with uh, politics as, and my books, you know, how can you talk about an individual when you don't talk about the world that they come from, you know, the, the systems that are shaping and they're resisting as well. Why do governments exist? You know, the origins of government that were meant to serve us and capitalism, again, why these systems that really have, we now exist to serve systems. You know, governments need us in order to pay their salaries and their taxes and to keep this thing running. And capitalism needs us to keep spending, which I find very strange. It's no longer, it hasn't been for a long time, a people-centered, a citizen-centered world. And so that's something I've been thinking about a lot and how to live with my own confusion and anger about these systems and part of why I'm not Buddhist, but I'm very interested in the Buddhist philosophy because the, the sense of patience and time and the sense of both recognizing truths, but also letting those truths run their cycle is something I uh, want to learn from. So that's something I'm thinking about. And the other thing, which is inescapable, is the environment. I mean, we, we're destroying the planet that we're living on. I'm destroying the planet that I'm living on as well. And I think, you know, I've thought about the way we vote. I, I almost feel like any, the politician that is going to actually do something about the environment, it, it's, I just want to be that one vote person now. That's the thing that actually matters more than anything is a person who's committed to the future rather than just to the present three, four, five years. Um, I try to bring that into my classroom with my students. <laughs> the first week of class, we talk, it's a creative writing, but I also say, but we're also human beings. Writers are human beings and our writing is our practice of living. And so what can we also do on a daily level to change you know, the way we live, to be a little less harmful to the planet we live on? That means things like everyone brings their own tumblers. You know, what else can you do? What kind of, what companies do you support? You know, how do you recycle? Um, you know, just like those little choices. And then I try to make it a habit for myself and for my students. You know, we're not being judgy because I say it's our problem. It's my problem. And how can we just make things a little bit better by the practice or the habit of being a little more environmentally conscious. I do that. I, I try to carry that with me because I think change happens one person at a time. When I was an activist, I really thought it's overwhelming. When you think of the North Korean refugee crisis and when you saw all these people coming, and I really thought of it as one person at a time, one, you know, one teenager, one man, you're helping individuals. And I think that's how that change, we have conversations and conversations can actually start tiny changes. I wish I could make bigger things happen, but these people up there, these politicians, you know, that trickle, maybe instead of a trickle down effect, it has to happen trickle up. I think we have to, you're right, include more people in this process because why only listen to those in charge, you know? <laughs> also... <laughs> change they, the change is so slow they're yeah, not going to so many things that we can do that's so obvious and they're not going to do it because it hurts corporate profit 
And so when we start making those, like when I go to the grocery store, like little grocery stores, there's a place where they're always giving things in plastic. And I said, you know, and I just refuse the plastic. And I, I suggested, well, why don't, you know, what about having these things in barrels and we can just bring our own dishes and we can fill it up and take it back. And I'm so willing to do that rather than, you know, and it's not going to save me money, but it will save, it will actually save them money. And it will save over a year, probably thousands, hundreds, tens of thousands of pounds of plastic, just one store alone. And that to me is quite shocking, but the change that can happen is pretty amazing too. There's small changes, but as we, as those changes are incorporated, you know, into our daily practice, that becomes bigger changes. And we influence our friends, our families, the people around us by having conversations, not by being like judgmental because it's my problem. You know, I, I have the same weaknesses. And so we all try to help each other be better, <laughs> you know, be more mindful. Well, and you've given us so much to think about. And I, so I want to, and, and really, and that's what you've done with your writing, but I can see that it filters on into your life so that your students must be very uh, lucky as well to have you for a teacher. And so I want to thank you, Chris Lee, for your imagination and the compassion of your stories that have helped expand our awareness of loss, memory, immigration, you know, refugee crisis, uh, and, and also for helping us see Korea through your eyes. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. And thank you, Yu Yang Lee, our participating student, for all your good questions. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yen Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Yu Yang Lee with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.